Hello and welcome to Cities of Sand, a podcast which unearths the connections between urbanisation and the material at the heart of it, sand. I'm Kate Dawson and I'm your host. Thanks for joining. Thank you so much for being with us, Craig. We really appreciate your time and expertise. So, um, You're very welcome. I've followed you on different podcasts, but I'd love to hear it in your own words. So could you give us a brief overview of what Agile Property Homes offers? Yes, we're a new startup company, but with quite a history. We design and build low carbon affordable homes for people in housing need. And we do that with natural and renewable materials that have captured and stored carbon. And then we can actually build with those materials. So we build with carbon. And so we anticipate a movement to turn the built environment into a carbon sink. And we do that using modern methods of construction or prefabrication, as it used to be called. That's interesting. So we're coming at it from the sand angle. Most of our listeners are concerned about the global sand crisis and concrete and things like that. So from a material point uh, perspective, could you help us understand how does it work with the kind of homes that you can build? Well, part of the challenge uh, we are addressing is uh, the housing crisis. That's one side. The other way is the climate emergency and looking at Uh, embodied carbon of materials. And once you start going on that journey, you try to use materials that have high recycled content. And you can certainly do that with concrete, with cement replacements and uh, recycled aggregates. But the journey inevitably takes you towards working with materials that are renewable. So wood, uh, hemp, straw, and other organic fibrous materials, because they have the wonderful effect of actually, in order to make those materials, nature has absorbed CO2 out of the atmosphere and then retain the carbon molecule to be the building blocks of natural materials, and then puts the oxygen atoms back to atmosphere, which is a a nice kind of pollutant for us to thrive on on the planet. So quite naturally, once you start looking at embodied carbon, you make a journey towards that material set and start to use less of the higher embodied carbon materials. So for those of us who may not be familiar with what embodied carbon means, how would you define it? Well, basically, it used to be called embodied energy. And basically, it's all of the energy and the associated carbon dioxide emissions associated with finding materials, mining materials, processing materials, turning them into products and deliver them to a construction site. And then embodied carbon calculation stops once they go into a building. So it's all the emissions of CO2 associated with the finding, processing and delivery of materials. And there are some very high intense materials and there are lower intensity in body carbon materials. Interesting. So traditionally concrete, I assume, would fall under the high carbon material, right? Well, not necessarily. In the in spectrum of carbon emissions, metal-based materials are the highest and then plastics, and then concrete isn't a hugely high embodied carbon material. The impact in terms of climate change is the volume of concrete we use. And currently we 
pour about 9 billion cubic meters of concrete every year. And it's the volume of the material that drives between 8 to 9% of global CO2 emissions. So this is so fascinating. Could you tell us how this venture came about? Yes, I'm an architect by training and prior to setting up Agile Homes, ran the architectural practice, white design and the prefabrication business ModCell. ModCell makes prefabricated building systems using straw and uh, historically hemp. And then what we saw that the challenge of delivering affordable homes will not be met by commercial development models. They're designed to make profit. It's very hard to ask a machine that is designed to make profit to make less profit. So what we did was combine our prefabrication skills with our design skills and then financial and land assembly skills. So bringing uh, forward land that communities could either get at no or low cost and then deliver an entirely prefabricated building system that is made of timber and straw. And what we're able to do then is build low carbon affordable homes faster and more affordably than conventional developers are able to do. And what about the durability of these buildings? I think that's a really good question because once you work with organic materials, well, we get we get lots of questions. We get questions about three pigs. We get questions about <laughs> mice, rats, and decay uh, because all organic material will decay in circumstances that allow that. So the enemy of renewable or natural organic-based materials is water in the wrong place at the wrong time. So what we do is design our buildings with great attention to detail to make sure that those two never meet, or if a building leaks, we know how to get it out fast. Once you've accepted that, as one of the design parameters you work with, like all materials, they all have design parameters. You can actually scale the delivery of buildings that routinely use uh, carbon capturing materials rather than materials that are responsible for emitting high volumes of carbon dioxide. And uh, the rise of materials like uh, cross-laminated timber, driven a lot of innovation into how architects and engineers can think about the delivery of buildings. And we're now seeing a huge diversity of interest in the use of natural materials. You mentioned a word that I think we're all, um, we've all heard and we can all, uh, we're all concerned about the housing crisis. So could you help us understand how low carbon construction can address the current housing crisis, especially the UK? Well, the the challenge uh, for us in the UK and in most of uh, Europe is the supply of affordable homes is not meeting the demand for them and therefore prices are rapidly increasing. So, for example, I think the average house price in the UK peaked at £303,000 this month and that is 10.3 times what the average income in the UK is. If you're in London, the average house price is 16 times average earnings. And so we have a huge structural problem in terms of the delivery of affordable homes. At the same time, homes and our built environment in developed economies like Europe are responsible for 44% 
of global emissions. So we need to build more homes, but in building more homes, we're likely to increase our CO2 emissions. So the objective for the construction industry is to optimize how we can reduce emissions and to also make sure that the supply of homes becomes more affordable. So uh, for the people who work in construction and uh, housing development, it's a double whammy. We emit lots of carbon and we're also responsible for not delivering on the housing supply that we need. So they're not intrinsically linked, absolutely. But what we do is make sure that our buildings are super insulated, airtight, triple glazed, and then they're also made of natural and renewable carbon capturing materials so that we challenge the double whammy by coming back with a double win on efficiency and the materials we use. Just listening is is so interesting to hear and it makes so much sense thinking about linking these these challenges so clearly. My question is, it picks up on something you talked about as your expertise being in land assembly, and that makes sense to me. What are the challenges with assembling land for this kind of, these kinds of projects? Um, And are there particular kinds of places where we imagine we're never going to be able to build in this way? I'm thinking, you know, you've spoken about London. Is is there land available in London to do this kind of thing? Yes, I think land supply for the delivery of affordable homes is absolutely crucial. And the classic development model is a developer will buy some land, wait until they can get planning permission on it, build their homes, and then sell both. They sell both the land and the homes, and that's called a developer exit. So they exit with Mm -hmm. 20, 25% profit. They'll claim they make less, but that's the the number that needs to be in place for a bank to help on the lending front. So 20% is what a developer exit is. So if you have to buy land, build homes and sell them, you're locked into the cost of land, the cost of building homes, and then your postcode where postcode determines value because you can build exactly the same house in two different postcodes and they can sell for different values because one might be nearer the city centre than the other. So that equation of land, hardware, your homes and sales will never deliver affordable homes because they're all inflation and profit built into them. So our question was, can you build homes and not pay for land? Not can we get land cheap, but actually never buy land? And the answer is yes, you can. And you can do that in a variety of ways. In the UK, we have something called state-owned land, uh, which councils own and local authorities own. Mm. And that land can only be sold for what's called best value. So normally it goes out onto the open market for developers to purchase. But in 2015, a new act came into existing into existence called the Custom Build and Community Housing Act. And what it said was that all local authorities in England have to identify land that could be used by communities to build their own homes. So this could be co-housing groups or uh, self-builders acting mm-hmm. collectively. And that land could not be sold to the commercial market until it had been declined by those groups. And that created a new land supply. 
And then, part of it is, so how do you get land for free? Mm. Well, for state-owned land, basically councils don't own land unless they bought them. Basically, councils were effectively gifted land by the state in order to deliver, you know, schools and hospitals and uh, housing historically. Today, when a council seeks to sell land, they have to get the Secretary of State to give permission to do that because it's a disposal of state-owned assets. You then go up to the primary legislation that says all land or assets owned by the state that are going to be sold by local councils must be sold for best values, uh, best value unless, and then there are a number of criteria. And those linked to the sites, uh, whether it's contaminated or not, so that's brownfield sites. Then there is something called vacant land, which is an in- interestingly blurry distinction. And then the other one, unless the land can be sold for social value, i.e. does the value that accrues from giving this land or transacting the land to allow affordable homes to be built, then best value does not apply because social value trumps that, which means we're actually involved in a number of projects where land has been transacted to community-led housing groups for one pound. And that's transformative in terms of how you start to deliver affordable homes. Yeah, that's amazing. I mean, thinking about how that works in different places, obviously some councils have more land at their disposal. How does that work in really kind of dense urban environments? Are there different types of challenges? Yeah, so the, 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 the particular thing we do as a business at Agile is that we design homes in two ways. We, we effectively make prefabricated building systems that are panels, so that becomes the floors, the walls and roofs of our buildings. But we also design quite a number of our buildings to comply with the Caravan Act. And the Caravan Act is not subject to conventional planning legislation. So our homes are built like conventional homes, other than materials are natural, and uh, will meet what's called a 60-year design life. And the Caravan Act demands that whatever you build has to meet three criteria. It's the size criteria, how it's built, and can it be moved? They don't have to have wheels. So the Act you can build high quality affordable homes that comply with the Caravan Act, i.e. we can move them. And that then allows us to look at land in a new way. We can work on very small sites. We've just got planning approval for 15 affordable homes on top of a roof of an office block here in Bristol. And just yesterday, I was looking at another office block, again, here in Bristol, where we could get uh, 15 to 20 homes on the roof. And we've done three or four schemes for the tops of multi-story car parks. And with the uh, change in the retail market, then what's called the death of retail, there are lots of shopping stories with multi-story car parks, which aren't filled anymore. So they tend to lock off the top floors because that's where teenagers like to hang out. And those floors can be used for rooftop housing communities. And at that point, you start to say, there's lots of land. And we use the phrase that land that is free and hidden in plain sight, and we can unlock the potential of that land. So urban, dense urban centers like London, Manchester, Liverpool, Glasgow, Edinburgh, I can guarantee there are hundreds of hectares of flat roofs that could be used to deliver affordable homes for people in housing need. 
Yeah, I, I love that. It sounds, it's, it's a complete radical rethinking of what land means in different contexts and opening yep. up, yeah, that way of thinking. So amazing. Thank yes. you. Part of the background of the innovation and your use, you call it radical, because the housing crisis will not be fixed by slight tweaks at the edges of it. Mm. We're going to have to have some radical changes to deliver affordable homes. Great. Thank you. Okay, Kieran, I'll hand it back to you now. That was my main question. <laughs> we're, we're quite far away from sand and concrete at this point. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but, but I think we do have to think about the big picture if we want to. So, yeah. you know, all these things are so interconnected. And so I also wanted to mention that I understand that you can now deliver building material in flat pack boxes, right? So it's easier yeah. to, to reach spaces that were previously hard to reach. Is, is, that, is that correct? Yes, so the, there's a, a big change in the way we are thinking about delivering buildings and houses. And prefabrication used to be the description. It's now called modern methods of construction. And effectively, that looks at how you design buildings to imagine building them all off-site as components, a bit like an IKEA building system. And then you bring them to site and you build them much faster as a result. So instead of, we're now moving into winter, instead of trying to build traditionally using bricks and mortar on a wet, windy December Tuesday, you do all of that in a factory condition where it's always dry, it's warm, the toilets work, and there's, a, there's perhaps a cafe where you can eat your lunch and buy your coffees. And that allows you to build higher quality components that then get assembled on sites. And then there are two methods by which you do prefabrication, either flat pack, a bit like an Ikea bookshelf, or volumetric, i.e. you build the shape of the building in the factory and then transport it to the construction site on the back of a low loader. And is one better than the other? It varies, uh, I think. So if you're in the middle of London doing development, volumetric is very good because you can build more building faster, there's less disruption, there's less road closures, there's less vehicle movements. But the land value has to be quite high because volumetric construction requires specialist delivery vehicles and extremely large cranes, which can cost up to £7,000 a day to hire. So you, you, it's an economic question. So flat pack is more affordable, the, the, the installation costs are less, but it takes slightly longer to build on site. Volumetric is, can be eye-wateringly expensive, so you tend to do that in, in high-value areas where the resale value can be achieved and you're minimizing disruption. So, for example, in London, the congestion zone uh, construction is now trying to minimize the number of lorry movements in and out of London for congestion and safety reasons. So volumetric works very well as a solution in that space, but economically harder to do one house volumetrically because the crane hire is so expensive. Mm. So I know that you're working with Crisis, um, the, the charity. In the, yeah. uh, could, could you tell us more about that? That's that yeah, exciting well, development. We're a startup company established just two and a bit years ago. And we started with investment coming in from what's called friends and family or a seed round. And we've just closed the investment round very excitingly with crisis 
the homelessness charity coming in as an investor. And that's because they saw that we were doing innovation and they saw that affordability using the models that we've developed could truly be delivered and affordability down to the level where to reduce homelessness, a number or a proportion of the houses we deliver would have to be effectively zero rent costs in order to get um, people who might have experienced homelessness or rough sleeping off streets and into accommodation. Not all homeless people would immediately qualify for benefits. So what we were able to do uh, was demonstrate to the crisis that our vision and values, people-centered housing, aligned with theirs, and that our development model for the delivery of affordable homes was properly affordable. And we're super delighted to have them as part of our team. And I think it also speaks, hopefully, to that our values are built in, they're baked into what we do and not just added on. That's very inspiring. So (laughs) could you help us understand what kind of uh, reaction you've received, like whether it's, uh, you know, if you face any barriers or if you if you receive praise it'd be great to hear yeah so when when you uh, the world is very used to housing not being affordable and uh, you know we've had uh, the creation of generation rent for a lot of young people who now don't expect necessarily to own a home and so we've become groomed to kind of expect that disappointment and when you come along and say actually there is a very different way that this could be done you join together lots of uh, bits of the jigsaw and create a new picture with affordable homes. It takes a little while for some people to understand the whole of what we do. And so sometimes people think this must be too good to be true, Uh, (laughs) but it is true. And we are delivering using these new and exciting mechanisms. Really, really and truly. Yeah, it does feel like we've drifted from sand, but that's okay because I feel like the solutions need to make sense. Do you know what I mean? For them to really yeah. kind of make sense to, to listeners. It, building with straw in the UK and how that sounds amazing, but like, how does it work? And I think for it to really yeah. take hold, people will want to kind of know, you know, that the land thing for me, that's so significant. So it's so great to hear it all come together. Yes. Thank you. It's been uh, it's been a long work. I, love, <laughs> I didn't get this grey hair. <laughs> <laughs> scratching my head a lot and thinking it's taken 15 years to pull all of this together but it's really now working which is really exciting and clearly coming up on people's radars like yours Mm. so I'm really pleased with that. So thank you so much, Shruti, for making time to speak with us. It's such a pleasure to have you on the podcast today. Thank you so much for having me. Um, So for the benefit of our audience, uh, it would be wonderful to hear um, a a little bit brief about your um, business, Structure Eco, and um, uh, the value proposition that you offer. Sure, definitely. So Structure Eco is a green uh, building material company based out of India, started in June 2018. Though personally, uh, for me, the journey for Structure Eco started a year before that, uh, when I sort of physically happened to see the problem of stubble burning in India. And what we do at Structure is that we convert this unwanted waste, which is stubble in India, which is 
produce an enormous quantity of around 500 million metric ton annually into a compressed, waterproof, fireproof, and a termite-proof green building material, which is a substitute for other carbon-intensive uh, materials such as brick, cement, clay-burned bricks, uh, wood as well, uh, for different interior and exterior application in construction for both residential and commercial purposes. So the idea is to use a material that stores carbon dioxide and at the same time uh, helps farmers in India to make an additional income by not burning the straw at their farm. This is such a such an interesting product. And um, I remember reading a lot of um, uh, you know, uh, news stories about how farmers were burning um, uh, the straw on their, the remaining straw on their fields, and this was causing air pollution. Uh, it was a huge topic in Delhi and other parts of uh, North India, right? Is that correct? Yes, it's, 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 it's a huge problem, actually. When you look into it, what I found most shocking was that it's actually a more than a national problem in countries such as Vietnam, Thailand, other South Asian countries as well, where paddy and wheat is the main staple crop. Hmm. A lot of stubble is burnt in Vietnam, around 20 million metric ton of paddy is burnt as well. The thing is that in India, because Delhi is a landlocked city hmm. and there's already very high pollution levels. So when every winter this adds to the cost, it just becomes uh, out of hand for anybody to control. And then the air pollution and the air index level is so bad in Delhi that you can feel the difference of every time you land hmm. in Delhi from another city or a country. Uh, but definitely, it's a it's a national problem in India and different states. And we have met more than 500 farmers who have told us from more than 15 states in the country that they all burn their stubble. And it's not just paddy. It's not limited to one crop. It's maize, cotton, sugarcane, uh, a lot of other, you know, fibrous crops that are grown in different parts of the country where the byproduct is then uh, wasted and has no value. So it's burnt on the land. And so um, I find it so fascinating to learn. Um, so it would be, I think our audience would be very interested to hear your backstory. How did this company come about and what led you to make uh, a company that, you know, produces straw panels for construction? Personally, for me, I, I never thought I'll be an entrepreneur or I'll be doing this work that I'm doing right now. I'm actually a civil engineer by profession and I moved to the US in 2013 to do my master's in construction management from New York University and I was there for three years. I studied, I worked for a year in a PMC firm and then I just took a very early sabbatical in my life for no reason <laughs> and just quit my job though it was going all great. I had my visa and everything in place and I thought I'll just want to for a year travel in India and understand the part of India that I've never been exposed to, which I felt the need to after moving out of India because I've been born and brought up in a city. So I moved back and I did a 13-month-long rural fellowship. There's a foundation that runs this fellowship back in India where uh, around 20 to 25 fellows in the age group of 20 to 29 uh, choose to live in a village for a year where you're not told what to do, but you are allowed to stay with the community and build a project along with the community based on the need-based assessment of what that local area needs and what are the problems that are there. So I did that in 2017 when I moved back to India. I was working on animal husbandry. Again, nothing to do with stubble or construction. It just happened that six months into the fellowship, I was one day just going with a few women to the farm. I was trying to learn how to grow uh, 
you know, do farming just out of curiosity since I was there every day. And I saw them after the harvesting period burning the stubble. And this was not Delhi. This was central India. And that caught my attention because until that, then, even my limited understanding was that it's only a thing that happens in Punjab and Haryana around Delhi. And so when I started uh, digging a little more into it, talking to the farmers, I realized how big of a problem it is. And since I had a lot of free time in the fellowship because people in villages go off to sleep by five and thankfully that village had internet. So when I would do my research, I realized that there are a few companies in other parts of the world, not in India, in Europe, actually who are at a small scale successfully have done something with this waste and have come up with biomaterials in the construction space, which is a good value addition and a good way to upcycle this waste in a circular economy fashion. And that's when my construction background kicked in and I thought, okay, this value addition makes sense to me. Maybe I can do something in this space. And so when the fellowship got over, I didn't go back to the US uh, to continue my job, uh, which I had. And I just full-time started in January 2018 to work on this. And finally, in June 2018, legally established the company to give it a structure. And since then, we've been doing this commercially as a full for-profit enterprise. Uh, that's fascinating. Um, am I right in understanding that you have a background in civil engineering? Yes. yes. Interesting. So um, if, coming from a climate perspective, is you know, many people talk about carbon emissions uh, uh, mm-hmm. of concrete and the embodied carbon of concrete and stuff like that. So do you have any thoughts on how uh, the product that you offer compares with that kind of, you know, yes. uh, yeah, comparison? Right. Definitely, definitely. So we have the life cycle analysis on the raw material, as well as the whole manufacturing of these agri-bio panels that we make. And every square feet of the panels that we manufacture at the end ends up storing 3 kg of carbon dioxide. So it sequestrates carbon instead of emitting it, which is why we've been able to get the green certification for the product. And we are in the process of getting a few more stringent European standards of green and a circular uh, you know, trademarks for this product, which would be the first of its kind in India. Because through and through, A, we do not use any fossil fuel for the manufacturing of these panels because the same raw material that is burned, we use to, uh, you know, generate energy. Secondly, throughout the collection, manufacturing or utilization of the raw material, there is no water used at all. It's a completely dry building material. It doesn't need water to set or at all in any aspect of its um, life. And thirdly, because the stubble that would otherwise would have been burnt is being utilized, and that's the 96% of the weight of the material, and 4% is a binding agent, which again, in our case, is a is a non-formaldehyde-based, uh, comparatively cleaner resin. So overall, we end up storing carbon, uh, but and not emitting it. And these resins that you talk about, they are um, you've tested them for human health, and uh... yes. Yes, so the reason that we are using right now is a chemical, but it has. We have done uh, VOC testing. We have done a um, test on it where the seven most carcinogenic gases, such as carbon dioxide, carbon monoxide, and few more, which now are considered um, a big uh, warning signal to have in building materials, whether paint or other construction materials. Our panels have the lowest uh, emitting standards of that in the country right now, but we still believe that's not enough. Um, because we want to go a step further and in a year's time, the next thing that we want to do as a company is to R&D 
on bio raisins or collaborate with other enterprises that have worked on raisins based on soya algae and other um, you know interesting uh, particles that are out there so that even that 4% of our product is completely like the origin of it is bio it's natural it's renewable and not at all uh, chemical based that sounds yeah. wonderful okay. I wonder if perhaps you could talk to us about some of the projects that you've completed. For someone who's never uh, seen a, a building built with straw panels, what 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 kind of proof exists in the real world that this is possible? It's already being done. So that was actually the tricky thing for me as well to you know convince people, including my own family and parents, when I started out because. the whole idea of straw is that it's such a loose material we see it burning on the tv how can it be durable especially in a country like india where uh, people don't bring, build buildings for 10 15 years you build it for 100 years for three generations mm-hmm. so how do you make this sound as durable as concrete and cement so what i did we realized that we cannot even enter the market commercially without doing some pilots so i used my own savings and the first 6 months all we did is we picked up four different geographies in the country in terms of climatic conditions and we built few small different projects where we got support of the government and few ngos who gave us free patch of land so we built a small school we built a small child care center a mm-hmm. small public you know hall that community can use and a kitchen a community kitchen in different parts of the country which is still there as a way to demonstrate that this material can be used full fledged in exterior and interior facade of a building and since then in last two years we have utilized more than 2 lakh square feet of this panel commercially and we have more than 25 customers we have done more than 25 projects uh, in the country and it spans warehousing hospital school mm. my personal two projects that i feel really helped us validate the product was when we uh, last year during covid when every industry every work was affected even we shut down shop for two months and then we got this opportunity from a foundation asking if we can build faster a covid hospital because they realized that using cement and brick would take them six months and didn't had that sort of time on their hand and we took up the challenge and we said we could build in two months wow and we ended up building a 50 bed hospital a 100% covid relief 50 bed hospital in the interior of a state called bihar which is one of the most underdeveloped state in the country using this material and some amount of steel as support we used no brick no cement no concrete and that hospital is still running even this year as a covid hospital and post that we are right now building three more covid hospitals in the country around 200 bed hospital uh, with the same material so that really helped the government and the you know the 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 any kind of end user during covid to believe that if it should be used for something like healthcare where there are such stringent you know conditions material needs to be fireproof and so many other constraints made them believe then you can do easy things out of it like build furniture or a table or a partition because we could demonstrate that you can build a hospital and run that safely using this material absolutely inspiring to hear how you have not only made it through the pandemic but actually thrived in these conditions um so you mentioned that one of the challenges that you faced from a consumer side is the idea that often uh, people want to build for a long period of time and building with this material has a, a smaller life cycle potentially 
could you kind of go into that in a bit more depth and also tell us about some of the other challenges from the on the consumer side? Are there any issues that people um, they feel kind of would limit their their choices or they feel that they you know they they wouldn't necessarily want to build with this material? Of course. So one of the biggest challenges that, you know, we are operating in a space construction industry, which is not tech or e-commerce where innovation happens that often. People are, the last innovation that happened in terms of building material was cement, which was almost 100 years back. And since then, there is no mainstream new building material in the market, not just India, but globally. So definitely when you go to the consumer, whether a business or a, a end user making their home, they are very, um, they're quite, you know, concerned and there's a huge risk that they have to take to switch from a traditional material to this. And what we always like to tell them is that if you look back at the history of architecture, straw is not a new material. And, and But it's just that, you know, we as humans have sort of, you know, short memory for certain things. We don't remember that before cement, it was this straw bale and other natural materials that were used to build houses and all sort of structures globally. And they still stand and have, you know, been tested over years and decades so we have to bring back that knowledge and you know use that to build content around our technology and further demonstrate that what we are doing is using a more than 100 year old raw material but giving it a more structurally sophisticated shape so it's not loose anymore because earlier you could build a straw bale home because labor was cheap and it was so easily available but now you're building bringing it from a farm to a factory, turning it into pellets and panels similar to your MDF ply and wood studs, and then using it in the same fashion to build. So that gives them confidence. Secondly, we have invested a lot of time and effort to get all the certifications done. So whether it's a moisture, termite, fire, breaking load, all sort of mechanical tests that a building material require, we've gotten that done. It's approved by the government of India now to be commercially used. So all of that homework had to be done for the first year for us to be in a position that now we can commercially go to any entity and say that this is a mainstream product that if you're willing, you can try. And lastly, in India, price is it's an extremely price sensitive market in India. And even just for like a dollar or two, people can switch from brands and there's not a very strong sense of loyalty there. And so we were very particular that when we enter the market commercially after all the testings and certification, we want to be competitive to the most mainstream material that is out there. And we are around 20% uh, cheaper, which then, you know, completes the whole puzzle in terms of price, sustainability, the right test, accreditation for people to believe. And as I said, we have in two years seen more than 35 customers. This are all businesses, not end customers more than two lakh square feet of the material used in more than 10 different states. So now we are in a good position to scale this up with uh, some support of government and investment to make it a really mainstream product that can compete with brick and wood in our country. Yeah, that's fantastic to hear. And that's kind of exactly what I I was interested in understanding a little bit more about. Um, I do have some other questions or another question but perhaps I'll hand it back over to you Karen we can oh, no, come back go ahead please. okay um just other benefits so you've talked about um you've spoken about uh the issue of climate and how building with this material offers significant climate benefits 
What kind of other benefits do you see as central to building with this material? You've, you've mentioned a few, I think, in passing, but just to understand more clearly, you know, what, what, why, why should we be building with this material? Does it offer us something um, uh, beyond just managing carbon, yes. carbon dioxide? Definitely. I definitely think that, you know, even now, India and a lot of parts of the world has not matured enough as an economy to make sustainability their purchasing point. So sustainability is like a great byproduct, but nobody buys a product in India at least yet because it's just green. And for us, that's why we have built the product around three things, which we build, we believe is the inherent strength of straw as a raw material. And that is uh, its thermal uh, insulating properties. So, so straw similar to wood is an actually insulating material. And it is actually five times more thermally insulated than brick, which is the main mainstream building material in India for walls. Uh, for building any structure. Secondly, it's fire, which always sounds very counterintuitive to our end customers and anybody in the country because they see in the new stubble burning, but that's because it's lying, uh, lying loosely on the ground. But actually, straw has a lot of silica in it, uh, uh, besides having other uh, lignin and few other raw materials as ingredient. So when we compress the straw at a, at a, at a temperature and pressure, that silica ends up creating a coating on the panel itself internally and so our panels are actually two are fire rated which is the requirement of the indian national building code so we don't use any external chemical or an additive to make our raw material fireproof it's naturally in its manufacturing process becomes fireproof so fire thermal and lastly it's acoustics for us because straw again so we have a, a very good r d expert in our team who did extensive research on the straw and the panel and he pitched a uh, that you know internally to the company that we can build very strong product line around acoustics because straw has great property to absorb sound so it acts as a good absorber as well as a resonator so we are actually in the process right now to commercialize a lot of products for halls theaters studios which um, and in india there are very few acoustic products so we have positioned agri biopanel as a as a technically um, you know superior product in the country first uh, and that's what we are focusing on. And then comes the additional value of it also storing carbon to the customer. So they buy for the price competitiveness, better thermal and acoustic comfort and safety rather than just the greener aspect. Yeah, that's fantastic to hear and, and, and really kind of um, makes it clear why this product is so successful. So thank you. Thank you. Absolutely. I mean, I, it, it was so heartening to read and hear about your stories. And um, so when I was writing my books and stories, I, I also featured a company that uh, was making straw panels uh, in Europe. So it's really wonderful to hear that this uh, product is also available in India and you know other parts of the world and entrepreneurs like you are um showing us how how you know it's possible to build well and to, mm. to live well um one of the things that um when it comes to natural building techniques mm. often uh i think perception about these products is key um and i've spoken to many experts who seem to get the feedback that people perceive na natural building products as a sign of uh poverty whereas concrete is mm -hmm, mm -hmm. people aspire to concrete but not so much natural building products i wonder if you faced anything of the sort and 
if you have it oh, com- completely completely especially in a country like india where there's such inequality and i com- and i i definitely resonate with what you said that um there has to be an aspirational value to the product even though you are technically superior structurally you can present all the certificate but to the consumer psychologically if they don't feel good about buying it and feel a sense of pride especially when you're talking about a residential uh, segment where people put their entire savings to build a home mm. why would they switch and concrete definitely has that aspirational value so when we started the company we were very clear that uh, that you know we want to bring back this raw material into the mainstream ecosystem but it has to meet aesthetically all the all the finer points that cement and concrete does so the way we manufacture these panels you can do all kind of finishes on it and in the initial year all the projects that we built we were sure that when we when we want a customer to enter the building we don't want to want them to realize they are in a building that is not made of brick and concrete unless they ask for it so as aesthetically texture wise it's the same mm-hmm. and that's something we have believed has really helped for the consumer to adopt this product because they are not questioning okay what if someone comes and tells me oh your house is not built of you know a brick and mortar uh, because it should look like it has it is made of brick and mortar and then you are like oh it's not it's it's a more functional material than that so we've been very particular about aesthetics and finishes from the start which is why we have a strong in-house construction team even though we are building material company we have invested in last two years doing all the projects ourselves the installation so that we don't compromise on the final look of the building whether it's a school a hospital or a house and that would really then drive that customer to suggest to other people to use it because they feel that sense of pride that okay this looks good while you know i'm using a new or a different material for sure that's wonderful to hear um so i wonder if you can talk talk to us about some of the challenges you faced along the way sure so one of the challenges that um we have definitely faced is there's a very slow um i won't say an adoption curve but there's a straw there's a slow curve in the sense of when someone uses the material once they um, they they are sort of uh, you know being apprehensive of recommending it again and the reason for that is lack of availability which is now the biggest bottleneck for us as a company when you're at the pilot stage you can do one thing in one state but when you want to scale up you cannot just scale up this um in a day or two you need to build the complete uh, supply chain for the raw material to be converted into the panels locally everywhere before people feel that okay we can adopt this because our we often face this question from an architect who's like i like this material but if i need let's say tomorrow 2 million square feet of that can you provide that to me in a month's time because a lot of mainstream product is available in that quantity mm-hmm. so now for us the biggest challenge is to create the supply to you know have the availability and then uh, build the demand side because if we go and build the demand and we sort of lack on the supply side being a new material there'll be a very strong back uh, back uh, you know backlash from the customer and they will immediately start not recommending it again so now all our resources and the investments that we are raising currently is all going into addressing this challenge to create localized smaller factories across india multiple of them uh, so that whenever if i am we are in a new state we can very easily say that it will take us a month or two to create the supply and then build the market from scratch so that's a main challenge right now is the availability uh, which has to be localized and decentralized 
in a country like India, you can't build one big factory for this, similar to cement or plasterboard. That's not how this material works. And I feel that more than the product, what we as a company are trying to prove is that this model is has potential. The decentralized manufacturing model for a building material can scale up, is scalable, repeatable. And if that is provable, then I think the product definitely has, you know, taken care of most of its concern. But it's not the model that needs to be shown has value at scale. Mm. That's a that's I think it's so crucial from a practical standpoint. And um, um, what kind of support have you received from whether it's from regulators or different? I know you mentioned some foundations that helped you at the early stages, but um, it'd be interesting to hear what kind of support you've received, especially from regulators. Definitely. So, for instance, one of the support that we got from the government itself is that the GST, the the taxes that are imposed on different materials, uh, we have a 6% lesser tax on our product versus all the traditional building material in the country because we are using a greener, um, because we are making a greener product and we are upcycling a waste. So that was one support we got very initially from the government. And for Secondly, those, sorry yes. to interrupt, yes. for, for those who are not familiar with what GST is, could you... Uh, Sure. It's it's basically a it's it's basically a sales tax. It's a good and service tax in the country, in India. It's mm-hmm. one one tax that each business pays on the product that they manufacture, and that finally is part of the cost of the end consumer. So, mm-hmm. for example, all traditional materials in India have an 18 one eight eighteen percent tax, mm-hmm. whether it is steel, cement, concrete, brick. But we have a twelve percent GST. So there's an immediate six percent sort of benefit to the consumer if they switch to this. That was a support that the government gave us very early on. Secondly, we have gotten a lot of support from CSR and foundations in doing pilots in the initial year when the commercial businesses were still apprehensive of trying it out. The CSR foundations, Indian and international, were the first to support us and say that we'll get our build projects done using this and not a traditional carbon-intensive material. That really helped us to showcase the possibility. And lastly, currently, uh, we are a government of India recognized startup. Um, it it uh, we have we have recently closed our first uh, seed round of investment, and it wasn't honestly an uphill battle for us and for me as well personally because we saw that uh, people are interested in a product like this. Uh, they want to support it, and globally because as you even earlier mentioned that you wrote in your book about a company in Europe, there are now more than four or five examples that even I know globally that are working on straw, hemp, other natural materials that it sort of is building the ecosystem for biomaterials. So this is a really good time, I think, not just in India, but globally to work on such materials where you also have support from governments, foundations, and and even you know the places where the money is coming in from to really build the model and the business. So we have definitely been very um, fortunate in getting all the support on this side um, of the business model, for sure. <laughs> That's so, um, I think you're being very humble there. I know you've received <laughs> lots of uh, recognition, uh, Forbes under 30, uh, is that right? So, yes, yeah, that happened this year uh, in March, the Forbes Asia, yeah. That's wonderful. Amazing. Um, Congratulations. Thanks. thanks. <laughs> and I'm really not surprised at all. Like just listening to you, I'm in, in absolute awe. Just even the way you're able to kind of explain every element of it. There is so much that goes into building a business like this that, that not only has the ideas, but is able to, to function and 
and move across these spaces. And I think the idea of like shifting our models of of, of production um, and consumption of materials for building is so interesting. Thank you, thank you. I, I when I did the fellowship, Kate, I I knew one thing for sure that I didn't wanted this. Like I didn't wanted to do this in a non for profit model. Not that I'm against non profit or charities, but I just felt that in a country like India, when you want to create impact at such a great scale, mm -hmm. businesses and good business models can really do it in a much faster manner mm -hmm. exponentially and you can really get the resources for it. So of, so even when I talk about it, um, my emphasis is a lot along from the product also on the business. Like how do you build a, a resilient business model that can do this, you know, without yeah. me or anybody who is currently doing this because the business itself is sustainable and has certain things in place for itself. So that's definitely been a focus as a company to build the model and, and also the product, of course. Yeah, it's amazing. Thank you. Sounds wonderful, Shruti. Um, so before, um, before I come to the last question I had, I, had, I have another question that kind of popped up. Um, as a woman in the construction sector, what has been your experience? Uh, it'd be lovely to hear. It's been a very interesting experience, personally. I didn't know even how the experience would be or what I'm signing up for because I didn't actually think through too much. I think sometimes you make some of your most important decisions without overthinking it. Mm. So I just jumped into it. But when I started, I realized when, because as I said, we did a lot of pilots, right? So that was when I was exposed to being at construction sites and explaining people how to use this material, which is where I did face a bit of a resistance from the people who had to finally build it, which is the carpenters or the masons, because that is when I realized where where that you know how skewed the gender ratio is in the industry. I was and I'm still like the only woman at most of my construction sites. So, but I think you can. It's it's on you how you want to sort of play it in your favor. You can either be like that's that's a negative, or because you're the only one at the you know the physical place. The way I work around it is that I know that when I speak, people listen. So I'm like, as long as my facts are in place and I've done my homework, I do believe facts and data can help, you know, demystify a lot of biases, including gender. So that's the place that I work from without, you know, questioning it too much. I I do have to sometimes overdo my homework so that because I know I don't have that much room to make mistakes that as maybe like, uh, you know, the male counterparts in the industry. But at the same time, I know that I do get a lot of attention immediately because of my presence and my gender, which if, you know, utilized in the good way, can really help you take forward. The other uh, thing that helped us, like me being a woman and running this company is that till date, we have not spent a penny on marketing. Uh, because, you know, it's always very interesting for people in India. They're like, oh, there's no construction or building material company run by a woman. So there's a lot of um, interviews and a lot of media visibility that we have gotten and the work has gotten because of this aspect. So that is there, but also, and, but that's like the good side of it. And, and then the challenging side of being a woman in this industry is that when you're talking to certain, uh, you know, more older sort of uh, places, like, so government supported us a lot, but I still... As a matter of fact, you know, don't go alone to any meetings to, to the government because I know that um, a 60 year old man needs to see someone in the room that he can trust 
and a 28 year old person going in female you know saying i run a construction company doesn't immediately build that trust so i have done a lot of these interesting things in terms of social experiment like i take one of my male colleagues with me for government meeting because i know that helps them to listen more to me than just me being in the room so whatever really just gets you to get the work done is how i've seen it but it's a very interesting experience i must say uh, you enter a room and you know um, you have little too much attention and then it's up to you how you want to use it uh, <laughs> that sounds fascinating definitely Uh, so in next five years, what we want to do as you know as a company is to use the you know the advantage that we have gotten in three years as the first mover to build an ecosystem, because it's not just a product that we are building. We have to build the complete supply chain. We have to do the awareness on the end consumer and for the architects and the designer. So we really want to play that part is to build the ecosystem. And then, as I rightly as I said earlier, since the way to scale this up is a decentralized manufacturing model we are going to um, make the technology to manufacture this open source in few years and we like more and more people in different parts of the country to come and be the manufacturers of this product and we as a company would focus on building the market side of it building the demand for it and the supply would be completely decentralized because we don't want to hold on to it because in a country like india we did a maths on this 6 months back and we realized we need the scale of one small factory that we have currently we need like 150 of those to even sort of you know meet the production capacity of the main uh, plywood manufacturer in the country that uses wood so the market and the potential is huge so we are not concerned about the competition but we want to build more people uh, to do this in the country and the second thing we are really looking forward to do in 5 years is to do extensive r&d on multiple agri fiber and really build a manual around you know every potential fiber that is out there such as cotton cassava wheat maize that we haven't even used now which can later be used as um, as a case study in other parts of the country to to be replicated and not just be limited to india so really sort of play that role to you know move the needle towards biomaterials that's the role we want to play as a company and not just focus on uh just hardcore selling the panels which anyway will happen and is a byproduct of this but we'd want to focus on building the ecosystem for biomaterials in next 5 years definitely in asia for sure this has been so interesting shruti and so inspiring and thank you so much for um for working on the in this space and and sharing your experience with us um So if if uh, where can people find you where can people find out more information about you and So we so we do have a website for structure and then we also have your a present on all the platforms LinkedIn Twitter Facebook Instagram uh, and then of course um, people can reach out to me on my email address of course I can share those uh, sort of details Yeah maybe, maybe Kate can add those to the sure, uh, sure. I'll do that. So I think that's it that's it from my end uh, I I know the Kate has done a lot of work um so we're coming at this uh, at this from a from a focus on sand right and and its mm-hmm. use and how it's deeply deeply embedded in everything around us and the way we how we build our cities and things like that so often we end up talking about the problem um but unless we have strong solutions that that can um shows the way it, it's really hard to move uh, mm-hmm. uh, from from the problem space i think and kate has done some phenomenal work in talking about 
sedimentary justice and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, I think uh, examples such as yours are really heartening and, and I really thank you for taking the time to speak with us. Uh, we really appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you so much for, you know, asking me out for this um, this podcast because the, I think as I even earlier said, the most important thing is to keep, you know, making it more visible and mainstream, which requires awareness. And all of this, you know, opportunity does that for people to be more aware of uh, what's happening mm-hmm. um, in this space. Absolutely. I think you're going to inspire a lot, a lot <laughs> of people. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Thank, thank you so much. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you. Welcome, everyone. Thank you so much for making it. Um, Yoka and Dr. Yang, thank you so much for your time here uh, today with to speak with us. Um, it's such a pleasure to have you with us. Yeah, thank you. So um, before we begin, I just want to set the context for, like I mentioned, um, many of the conversations that we've had in the podcast so far focus on construction sand, because that is the dominant use. However, we are very excited, both Kate and I are very excited to have you uh, with us today to speak about a crucial yet hidden aspect, uh, another use of sand um, in foundries. I think very few city city dwellers would know that sand is crucial to helping uh, shape our cities, how we live, how we travel around. Um, And I think fewer still would know about the kind of waste that's generated in the process. So... um, I'm I'm really excited by what I've discovered about your company, but I, I'd, uh, for for the benefit of our listeners, can you help us understand the problem statement uh, and give us an overview from a geographical perspective? That would be uh, very welcome. So, uh, globally, the foundries are producing uh, uh, 100 million tons of castings and. Um, it is a rule of thumb that uh, one ton of castings produce one ton of waste sand. And uh, currently the situation is that only a small part of this, uh, this waste sand has been utilized and uh, most part uh, goes uh, still to the landfills. And uh, there are many, many problems with uh, landfilling nowadays. And, uh, one thing is that uh, environmental legislation is getting stricter all, all the time and uh, because this uh, waste sand uh, contains a lot of impurities, it is uh, more and more difficult to find uh, uh, suitable landfills uh, that can receive this kind of material. And uh, another problem is that there is no space anymore in landfills. They are filling up and um, they don't want to use the remaining space. Uh, they, they want to save the remaining space for more hazardous wastes, and uh, they don't want to fill, fill this uh, uh, remaining space with, with this kind of bulk material that this uh, foundry waste sand is. And uh, the third problem is that uh, the distances between foundries uh, and uh, landfills are. are have increased a lot. Uh, for, for example, in Germany, in some some areas, uh, foundries need to transport uh, this waste sand over 500 kilometers before they can dispose the material. 
And uh, the same same thing is in, in Italy. Uh, some foundries, they, they need to transport their waste sand to France before they can dispose mm. it. So, so this, uh, this transportation is quite big issue. And uh, it, the situation is same with, with new sand. So, so uh, foundries, they, they need very high quality sand at, and it cannot be found everywhere. So, so many countries have to import this material. And, and for example, in, in Finland, foundries are importing this ma material from Belgium. And uh, Germany, which is a, a big producer of high, high quality foundries, and they are exporting this material to, to many uh, European countries and also, also to Asia. So, so this tra transportation, it, it plays a quite big role regarding how much uh, sand-related CO2 emissions foundries mm -hmm. are, are producing. Foundry, depend, foundry sand, uh, depending on the um, kind of castings, uh, it's mainly for uh, steel castings, where you need a purity of more than 80... Uh, 98.5 uh, up to 99.5 percent of quartz sand. So it has to be rather pure uh, silica and uh, not marry, uh, many impurities are tolerated because when you mix quartz with other minerals, uh, the um, um, temperature um, where the sand can be used uh, uh, decreases. So it has to be very pure, and therefore uh, one of the uh, most important uh, producers is a, a sand pit in Germany, where you can get about 99.5 purity in the in the silica sand, and this um, is sent almost um, they export, I think, about 60% uh, of of their uh, their sand uh, to other countries. It's mainly for foundry use, and therefore. Um, we have quite a strong impact, as, as Jukka said, on the environmental um, issues there uh, because of the uh, high costs and uh, carbon footprint of the transportation. So if we could find a way um, to, uh, to reuse that sand within a foundry and not to downcycle it um, to make it suitable uh, uh, in the building industry, where the uh, where you can use uh, or cut, can tolerate quite a lot of impurities, uh, this would be really um, advantages uh, for the foundries, and this is what uh, fin recycling has been uh, successful uh, doing. Oh, that sounds very interesting. Um, so, for the benefit of our listeners who may not be familiar with industrial processes, could you help us understand the word casting? What does that mean? Well, it's mainly if you uh, want uh, to form a part from iron or steel, you have mainly uh, two possibilities. You can take a block for iron and steel and uh, uh, machine the block, so the part mm -hmm. is out of the, of the block, or you can uh, melt the metal and pour it into a mold. And mm. this mold is quite often made uh, uh, of sand. So that's the sand the, the, uh, that needs to be very high purity. Is, yes, uh, that's what because it has to withstand a uh, high temperature. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, normal uh, pouring temperature of uh, liquid iron is about 1300 uh, to 1400 degrees. For steel, it's even higher. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you look at the, uh, uh, but not always for, for these high melting materials like iron and steel, mm-hmm. um, copper and bronze uh, uh, are quite low melting. So if you look at the old church belts, all of them are cast. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So, um, I read somewhere that foundries alone produce about what, 100 million tons of waste sand worldwide every year. Is this true? Yeah, yeah that's true. That, that's a lot of sand that's going waste. <laughs> yes, yes, it is. And, uh, and uh, with our solution, uh, that that amount of sand that go, goes to the landfill, we, we can um, recycle 90% of this sand that would otherwise go to the landfills. Sounds very interesting. Could you tell yeah. us more? How does it work? Uh, well, it is a t- thermal thermal process. So uh, in, in, in this uh, uh, reclaiming process, we are heating uh, the sand over 600 degrees and uh, uh, then we can burn all the binder residues of the sand. And after this process, it's, uh, uh, it is comparable to the virgin sand. And actually, it might be even a bit better because uh, in, in this uh, thermal process, uh, when the sand is heated over 600 degrees, we are causing uh, irreversible changes to the grain surface. So after the thermal process, the sand grains, they are more rounded and, and we, we can reduce the uh, specific surface area of, of the sand grains. So it means that when the sand is used uh, the next time in the, in, the, in the molding process, we can uh, use a less binder so, so we can achieve uh, the required uh, strength levels with, with less binder. And that is a big benefit for the foundry. So who, who would, uh, at the end of your recycling, once the product is regenerated, who would be the target customers? Uh, foundries. So, foundries so, again. Yeah, yeah, foundries again. So it's basically the same foundry uh, use the sand, gets it back after the recycling process. Mm-hmm. It sounds to me like a circular economy is being yes, put in place. that's the basic idea. Uh, you have some uh, finer parts, uh, uh, like dust and very uh, very fine particles, which have to uh, be taken out. You don't get 100% recycling. Mm. But, uh, it's well above 90. That's wonderful. And how many times can this uh, sand be recycled? Or regenerated? Well, uh, uh, we, we started our commercial deliveries to foundries in, in January 2019. Mm. So, so we have uh, recycled uh, uh, almost uh, three years now. So, so it's the quartz is quite durable. So, so it, we can recycle it many, many times. That's great news. Um, because what I, you get, if you're interested in the chemistry of physics behind that, <laughs> that's my, uh, my uh, point of view. I uh, graduated uh, uh, in, in chemistry mm-hmm. from from UCL in 1985, actually. How interesting. <laughs> <laughs> um, Do tell us. 
And um, what's happening there is uh, that the silica uh, uh, undergoes a phase transition mm-hmm. in this process, which is reversible. But um, this phase transition, um, because when you when you have some uh, mineralic binders uh, on the surface of the grains, they stick to that surface. And uh, when you heat it above the phase uh, transition temperature, uh, the, um, the uh, crystals will expand. And this expansion, the reason that uh, all these um, uh, uh, things uh, sitting very tight on the surface flake off. Because uh, the interior silica grain is expanding, so it's like almost like an explosion because it's mm-hmm. happening at a certain temperature at once. And so these uh, layers of, of binders are flaked off and um, you can take this off in the dedusting process. So you get really pure silica. There's only a small fraction uh, uh, of the binders remaining, which are sitting uh, sort of, if you look at under the, the microscope, in, the, in, the, in, the, in some, some holes uh, uh, on the surface of, of the grains. But that's, uh, the, uh, uh, this fraction is so small, it's not technically important. Mm, that's interesting. Um, so I, I also read that um, fin recycling also supplies sand to uh, could or could supply sand to power plants. Uh, could you help us understand why is sand used in power plants? Um, the sand is uh, uh, acting like 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 a crate in the, in the boiler so so there is a layer layer of the sand uh, at the bottom of the boiler and um, the the sand is then heated with 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 gas or oil uh, up to 500 degrees and then then they are adding uh, uh, for example biofuels uh, so wood wood based uh, fuels and uh, they are burning, burning this uh, fuel inside the this this sand layer. So so um, uh, there is uh, maybe uh, depending on the on the boiler, but uh, there there might be up to one hundred tons of sand in inside this boiler. And mm-hmm. the the sand is very hot. It's uh, the burning temperature is uh, around uh, eight hundred and fifty degrees. So it, it's uh, yeah yeah it, it is a, like a big heat battery, so so it uh, it can stand uh, the moisture variances very well because uh, there is so, so much sand inside this boiler, and uh, we have created also also solutions uh, for for these power plants that we can use uh, foundry waste sand in the boiler, so it. Mm-hmm. Uh, it uh, acts uh, like a, like a virgin sand, so so we can use waste sand also there. And uh, usually, usually the sand that that we are using in the boiler is is bentonite uh, bentonite bounded sand. Mm-hmm. So so the sand grains has has a bentonite layer, and uh, that that kind of kind of sand we can use using the power plants. Sounds fascinating. 
Um, so help us understand how did this venture come about? Well, it, it is a long, long, long story. Yeah, so, tell us. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, we have uh, started uh, operating with foundries around 15 years ago. So, so at first we, we started to supply scrap metals for foundries and also later recycling services. And, and during this time that, that we have uh, operated with foundries, we, has, we have seen the challenges that, that foundries have re regarding this waste and disposal. And uh, because the land, land filling is very expensive, uh, uh, foundries wanted to find an alternative solution for for landfilling and that's why they they approached us and asked our help with the, with this problem and so so we started to research about this uh, this subject and uh, we we found out that uh, this problem w wasn't just in Finland it, it, it was a global problem and and that's why we decided to to focus on this this waste and recycling because we we saw big possibilities here and uh, in in 2016 we acquired an old glass factory from from Nuutajärvi. Uh, at the time we made also demolition works and uh, uh, the the previous owner. They, they wanted to estimate what, what would be the demolition cost of this plant. And uh, during the visit, we noticed that there was a whole plant of uh, sand treatment equipment there. And uh, we started to estimate that could these uh, equipments uh, be suitable for sand recycling. And uh, the conclusion was that with some modifications that could be possible and uh, instead of offering a demolition cost, uh, we made a purchase offer of this plan and uh, it was accepted. And soon after that, uh, we contacted uh, Aalto University and we presented them our idea about this sand recycling plant. And uh, they got uh, excited about our idea because they had also studied this, this issue for, for decades. Mm -hmm. and. Uh, and uh, it was in late 2016 when we started the project with uh, Aalto University and and uh, seven Finnish foundries. And uh, these these foundries uh, they provided their waste and for us, and we we started to make re reclaiming trials and and more modifications to the equipment. And after six months of uh, uh, testing. Uh, we got our first reclaimed sand for, for testing to, to foundry and the results were so promising that we, we decided to continue this, this project and uh, for the next uh, year and a half period we made a lot of uh, testing and researching and mo modifications to the plant. And uh, finally we, we managed to get the sand quality that was comparable to the virgin virgin material and uh, and uh, therefore we were able to start our commercial deliveries in in january 2019 so we have now 
approximately three years of experience how this uh, reclaimed sand works in foundries. And uh, from the beginning, uh, our idea was to expand this uh, this business to international market because because we knew that uh, this this uh, problem was global, and uh, our original idea was to to copy this uh, centralized plant system to the market. But th then came this uh, COVID situation, and as we knew how how long this uh, uh, permitting might take uh, to this uh, this kind of centralized plant. We decided to change our approach and um, we started to create solutions for individual foundries because we thought that permitting would be much easier because uh, foundries already have environment, environmental permits. So, so it would be much easier mm. that way. And, and uh, we started to design this new unit in, in summer 2020. And the, the planning work was was ready by the end of that year, and we started uh, manufacturing this new unit in in February this year, and uh, and and in uh, in uh, and we we installed this uh, this new unit to Nutayari plant in May, so so we have now several months of experience of this this new system and it has worked so so well that uh, we have been able to start uh, commercial deliveries of, of this new unit so we have now now a few projects uh, uh, here in finland and the first first delivery should be still in this year and we have also a couple of projects in 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 germany mm -hmm. for example uh, uh, we visited uh, Freiburg University a couple of weeks ago, and, and our, our plan is to build one new unit uh, to, to this uh, university. So, so in the future, we can make uh, customer trials in, in the university. So it, it is quite quite interesting case for us. Sounds wonderful. Mm. Um, yeah. Actually, uh, we haven't been involved in in this project. We, we made one small uh, uh, trial, uh, mm. so so uh, it was regarding inorganic binder uh, uh, sand reclamation, and we we made one test, but uh, we we haven't been involved so heavily in in this project. I see. Okay, yeah. I I got that wrong then. Um. So. Uh, help us help us understand the, uh, more about the different partners that you're working with. Well, usually, uh, well, of course, the, the foundries are the main main customers for us. So, so that is, that is what, what we are focusing on right now. But also, we have uh, uh, construction customers and, and power plant customers. And uh, our idea is to, to uh, make this uh, sand recycling as as far as possible. So. So ideal situation would be that uh, the waste foundry sand could be used uh, first in, in power plant as a raw material there. And uh, then to get this uh, waste sand from power plants and, and uh, reclaim it to the construction customers. So, so the, the building material industry that 
that are making a dry mixed uh, products. So, so that is our that is our goal to to get this recycling rate as 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 high as possible. So, sorry. So, just to clarify, that would be it would start as be in a foundry, then be recycled, then put into the power plants, and then into construction. Yes. Yes. Wow. Exactly. That's, but that's you amazing. Can recycle it. <laughs> quite a number of times and reuse it in the foundries. Okay. Only, uh, the fraction um, which has a tour poor quality, uh, the quality is not uh, good enough mm. or the grain uh, size distribution doesn't fit for future foundry use. Mm. And this will be discarded and then uh, um, um, sort of downcycled uh, mm. to um, use in, in power plants. And even after this, Uh, the recycling process takes all the organic impurities out. Mm. So we have uh, not um, uh, a chemically critical waste, but you have um, um, material which can be used um, because of, uh, uh, um, of its physical properties. So its uh, physical properties mainly uh, the grain size distribution of the fraction you have. Because a foundry um, needs a lot uh, uh, coarse ascent uh, than, for instance, a power plant does. Right. Okay. So, really, the foundry requires the the purest quality sand, and that goes down to various degrees until it reaches construction, which can be a little bit more ambiguous or a little bit more adaptable. Yeah. yeah. Okay. That that's amazing to hear because it feels like that's going to expand the the lifespan of this initial sand that goes into the foundry process by so many years, which is which is amazing. It has all these different lives. Mm. Um, I do have a quick question. I'm I'm really interested to understand what the what the kind of reaction has been to you because I imagine that there are some companies that I mean don't benefit hugely from what you're able to do. Um, thinking about those that rely on exporting virgin sands continuously. Um, what has been the reaction, both positive and negative to you? Well, the re reactions haven't been so, so positive. So, so um, of course, the raw, raw material suppliers, uh, mm. they don't like us at all. So, so, of course, uh, we are we are eat, eating some of their business, and, and they are they are not happy with that. But I would say that uh, this uh, current situation uh, uh, is is something like that. Uh, you you have to be responsible mm. and uh, act responsibly. So so. Uh, Uh, I think that raw materials suppliers should should understand the situation and adapt to the situation. Absolutely, yeah. yeah because they are selling an, a non-renewable resource. Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, and this can be done only once because it's non-renewable. And uh, when I talked, uh, I came into this project by doing market research. And uh, uh, since I've been reconsulting business for about 30 years now, uh, I found some of my uh, former uh, uh, and actual foundry customers 
and uh, simply ask them uh, how much uh, they uh, have to pay for uh, the virgin sand and uh, for the deposition costs uh, of their waste sand. And uh, they have been very fond of the idea of recycling because it saves them quite a lot of, of money. Yeah. Uh, in, uh, um, 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 it's um, advantages for their carbon footprint, mm. uh, which they have to uh, uh, lay open under the new EU uh, uh, legislation. So uh, it's a double double benefit. One uh, one side uh, they can save about. 20, maybe 30% of the sand costs. And on the other hand side, uh, they can improve their carbon footprint, uh, which they have to do anyhow. Uh, otherwise, they, they would have to buy more uh, carbon certificates. Mm. Mm. And, and what about the, the construction industry? So, I mean, have you, have you been speaking um, to those in this industry to understand the benefits, are there particular kinds of benefits of using this sand? I mean, does that feature into um, thinking about kind of net zero construction? There must be a way of, of factoring this kind of recycled element into that as well. Uh, yes, uh, in Finland, uh, the, these companies that we are working with, uh, they have uh, really high uh, goals regarding these these issues, and uh, they are very excited about uh, uh, an opportunity to use recycled material in their production. Mm. So, yeah, I can imagine. I can imagine. Yeah. Okay, Karen, I'll hand it back over to you. Thank you. <laughs> no, at all. It sounds so promising. I think um, there's tremendous scope, not just in Europe, but also in other parts of the world. Um, from what I understand, China and India are also major players, right, when it comes to foundry sands? Yes, uh, I think that I have some 2018 figures. Uh, the global casting production, uh, China is uh, producing about 50% uh, of the global production, and in India, 15%. Mm, so these are, yeah, it's it is quite quite high. Do you know, Ralph, a bit better how this uh, industry is divided? Well, we have uh, from the from the uh, of course uh, China is uh, the largest foundry industry in the world. Um, then uh, we have quite a lot of steel casks in Russia, actually. Mm. Uh, which um, are mostly in the European part of Russia, though. Um, we've got a very large uh, uh, foundry industry in, in Turkey and in Japan and Korea. And then uh, Germany is sixth in the world, uh, almost on, on, on level with uh, Japan, and uh, then uh, the other uh, European countries follow uh, the biggest players in Europe being uh, Italy, France, and Spain. So mainly because um, uh, we have uh, um, large foundry industry is associated with uh, automotive production and uh, with the uh, machine industry. This is the most uh, the, uh, uh, the two most important customer groups. So, um, would automotives would be cars and uh, and uh, would it also involve buses and train carriages yes, yes. and things like that, right? 
So that's that's pretty much everywhere you look around the city. I mean, right. So I, I mean, there's 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 so much potential here. I'm really excited. Um, could you tell us? Uh, could you share your plans for the next five years and where you hope to take this? Um, it's a patented technology, right? Yeah, it is patented a technology and. Um, uh, well, uh, we definitely want to be a leading company that uh, produces uh, sand recycling services and solutions to the global markets. And uh, I would estimate that uh, within the next five years, we have uh, several, several hundred uh, units uh, around the world reclaiming the sand and um, I, I, I think that uh, we are reclaiming millions of tons of sand in, in the coming years. So, so we are seeing the, the huge potential in this in this business business area. So so our our goals are are, are high. <laughs> As they should be. Yeah, I think it's really inspiring what you are doing, um, and there's so much potential. There's, I think we're at a defining point in human history. We've, uh, we've, our industries have evolved in a certain manner over the, you know, over the last centuries, and they've served as well. We have achieved fantastic um, lifestyles, but we're at a point where what we do over the next few years will really define the quality of life for future generations. Would really define, uh, you know, uh, the biodiversity and whether our wildlife is able to thrive. So I think um, uh, having a system where we waste about 100 million tons of sand each year is 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 hugely wasteful and disrespectful to the natural world. I think. Yes. Yes, it is exactly. Yes, absolutely, yeah. and 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 we are so happy to have you share um, your work and. Sounds wonderful. So, uh, Yuka, thank you again for your time. And Dr. Young, thank you again thank you. for sharing your time and expertise. We really appreciate it. And we wish you every luck and every success in, in your work. Absolutely. Yeah, thank, thank you, you so much. much. Thank, thank you. you very much.